Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. On days like today, ask yourself, in the time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved? This country was still great when I came to the throne. All that's happened on my watch is the place to fall apart. You cannot flinch. It's only fallen apart if we say it has. There's a thing about the monarchy. We paper over the cracks. It is a duty. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching the Crown. This is episode two of our three episode miniseries. We are talking all about Princess Margaret. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. I'm VanityFair.com's deputy editor Katie Rich. And I'm Julie Miller, Vanity Fair senior features writer. And Royals expert. I'm going to throw that on you every single time. <laughs> she's wearing a crown right now. <laughs> I was about to make she the has, same She's joke. lit 18 cigarettes and she's drinking three whiskey drinks in honor of Princess Margaret. <laughs> the queen of our hearts. <laughs> so we are, we are here to talk all about Princess Margaret, played by Helena Bonham Carter, in season three of The Crown. Um, her main episodes are episode two, uh, which is Margaretology. And then the final episode of the season, which is called Critiqueur, uh, which was, I don't know what, what happened to my French there. got like real Southern for a I second. loved it. That's <laughs> Cri- the best I could Critiqueur. do. Uh, and um, so if you've not watched all the crown yet, you might want to wait because there's some big stuff that happens for Margaret in the final episode. If you don't care about his, we're just spoiling history after all. If you don't care about history being spoiled, uh, you can go ahead and listen to us chat about this. We also have, uh, an interview that Julie did with Princess Margaret's biographer, Christopher Warwick. So you want to, you want to tune in to hear, 
uh, him talk about sort of some of the differences between what actually happened to Margaret and what the, the show conveyed. Um, one thing we should say right from the top, and this is something that I know that Julie has encountered when she's interviewed actors on the show, um, is that Peter Morgan in making the crown is not trying to make a documentary, right? He's creating a fiction around with, with the bone structure of, reality and so when we talk about the differences we're not like saying how dare the crown change this that or the other thing but what's true is that what julie often finds when she does these pieces about the crown is that uh or katie katie wrote a really good one i remember for season two is like um the reality is even crazier and so sometimes it's just nice to know what we're missing uh in this netflix series so that story that I wrote for season two, by the way, about Margaret and Anthony remains like the highest traffic post I've ever written. Like it still pops up from time to time because I think everyone is as interested as the rest of us are. Um, so here we go. Let us let us get into the Margaret of it all. Um, this season starts uh, in episode two with a Margaret trip to uh, America. She's she's battling with Tony. She's and then and most importantly, you know, we get to see them as little girls and it's it, the question hanging over the episode is like, what would it have been like if Margaret had to wear the crown? And like, what's kind of true is that Margaret wouldn't be Margaret if she had had that responsibility hanging over her um, in her life the way that Elizabeth did. Um, she wouldn't get to be Margaret. But, you know, Margaret has her own ideas about what she's capable of and, and what she's asked to do. Um, let's start with Richard. What did, what did you think of this, um, USA centric episode around Margaret? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a funny, uh, nod to the special relationship that these two countries have, uh, but also the special relationship that American audiences have with the crown, which is, I think, much more beloved here than it is in the UK, at least in my anecdotal talking to like, you know, already farty London types, um, uh, so yeah, it's always nice to see those two worlds collide. I think back to like the Jackie um, Kennedy episode from season two, where that's an American coming into you know British territory. Um, but it's interesting because it, there, there's that dynamic explored. But I also love when you get to see like you know royals wilding out. You know, like where, where they're far from Elizabeth's kind of gaze of you know judgment, uh, and they can just be themselves. It's a bit like. Well, it's a bit like the scene on the morning show where Jennifer Aniston goes rogue and declares <laughs> Reese Witherspoon her new her new co-host w- right in front of the brass, and they can't do anything to stop it because that would be a PR nightmare. And this is a bit like Margaret kind of doing that. She's like, "Oh yeah, I mean, like you sent me on this, so like it's now it's all me," you know. Um, so I think that gives this show, which can sometimes be very quiet, very staid, a real um, you know infusion of uh, chaos and and I don't know levity in a way. Julie, how did this Margaret trip work for you? Before Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden got married, everyone around them could kind of see this was a disaster in the making. They were too much alike. Lord Snowden was known for sleeping around and everyone, a few people said to Princess Margaret, are you sure this is what you want to do? He's a bohemian. He's not going to be there for dinner. Are you sure you're okay with that? She, romantic that she was, said, of course, kind of thought that love would conquer all. And in the end, they would live this happy life. So when the crown picks up in season three, we're kind of seeing what everyone around her saw. They predicted that this would happen, that he was going to have these affairs and the relationship would kind of crumble. The American tour was incredible, incredible for me to see. (laughs) Because we see these American tours today where the royals are under so much uh, scrutiny 
that even the plane flights they take are scrutinized. If they're on a private private plane, you see William and Kate boarding uh, public planes, like which is a little bit crazy. They have these. Ins- Although, wait, sorry, doesn't don't Margaret and Anthony fly to the U.S. in a regular plane, but the entire first class cabin has been rented out to them? Uh in my in my research, I saw that they had their own plane. They had a, an entourage of twelve, including Margaret's hairdresser, her wow. lady in wait, waiting, her <laughs> assistant. They went with fifty pieces of luggage, and then within each each stop within the U.S., the plane had to fly once with the people, turn around, go back to pick up the luggage because it wasn't big enough to carry both the entourage and the luggage, <laughs> which is how Richard travels, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's 100 pieces of luggage. 100 pieces of luggage. <laughs> it was also amazing when you go back and you read the New York Times reports from this, this 60s trip. One headline was just, Princess Margaret and husband rest at Lewis Douglas Farm in Tucson following reception at Inn. And then their official host actually gave a quote to the New York Times saying of the day's itinerary, we have no plans, no plans at all. We will do as much or as little as they want to do. In (laughs) fairness to the couple, part of the trip was supposed to be private. But seeing these reports in the in the New York Times doesn't really bode well for anyone. There was another point in the trip where the New York Times wrote an article titled, Princess Margaret cancels lunch to rest. She was in her Rolls Royce on her way to Connecticut. The car suddenly stopped and just turned around and she went back to the 500 acre Long Island estate where she had been staying because she decided she didn't want to go to this private lunch. She wanted to rest. And her next day's events, what she was resting up for, included stops in Manhattan at Bergdorf Goodman, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Lord and Taylor department stores. So just this is so incredible to me because none of this could happen in today's world, right? No. no. I mean, the idea that like uh, uh, an un- ingrate royal would cancel a formal event to go rest at a mansion before going on a shopping spree like that they would be i mean there would be revolt yeah right don't you imagine Meghan markle reading these headlines and being like come on (laughs) you guys i went to a baby shower i mean it's really wild the new york times reported that like on one occasion the royal couple slept in till nearly noon margaret's lady in waiting was quoted at the initial reception uh, for the couple as complaining i guess her biggest challenge for the tour was and this is a quote. I think being on time is the hardest thing. I'm always late. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> it's just, it's incredible. <laughs> I love that Princess Margaret knew the importance of a work-life balance. <laughs> right. Just self-care. <laughs> self-care. Well, and, and the way it's pitched in the episode is that this was like, lar- like it, it, the implication is that this is largely supposed to be a personal trip for her. Maybe a chance to heal her relationship with Tony by like being there for him because he's got this like what photography book event or something like that, but she has to do her duty to the crown instead. Um, and um, I think the picture you're painting, Julie, is a little <laughs> it's a little different from that. So right, um, she had a and a friend, an American socialite named Charmin Douglas, who invited Princess Margaret to come out and Lord Snowden. It was their first trip to the U.S. and the crown kind of made it this tour. They made several stops, including Los Angeles. San Francisco, Tucson, New York, and Washington, D.C. Um, so they tried to build kind of an official diplomatic visit, and it was very much anticipated. Bob Hope joked about it on his show. 
People were waiting for them at the airport, uh, screaming. People were so excited about what Princess Margaret was going to wear. The New York Times wrote up even before they landed kind of a piece guessing about the mystery of her fashions. It was very much anticipated. Um, Katie, I'm curious what you think. One of my favorite quirks of The Crown is um, we see these American presidents trying to figure out, like, what do I do with a royal? Like, what what is <laughs> this that I have to deal with? Um, what did you think of Clancy Brown as LBJ and, and sort of how that White House, that particular administration was handled? I really like how LBJ has been the president that in recent years where just kind of allowed to admit was like kind of a weirdo and like did all, I mean, he did all this crazy stuff that was on the record at the time. Like he lived up his shirt to show reporters as gallbladder scar, uh, and always had these like funny metaphors and swearing. And I feel like a lot of depictions of him, like I remember Lee Schreiber, I think in The Butler, was that the movie where Lee Schreiber played LBJ? There's, there's been a couple of them lately. Um, so I like this version of it too, where you see him at the urinal and you see him like swapping dirty limericks with Princess Margaret. And there's this sense that she's going to go and like, like mortally offend him. But if you have, you know, followed these recent depictions of LBJ, you're like, oh no, they're kind of two peas in a pod. And and the historical report that you dug up, Julie, suggests that they really were, even if maybe it wasn't quite as crazy as the show makes it look. Well, I, I love though Peter Morgan's fantasy fiction version of this this meeting at the White House where Princess Margaret charms the president with a drinking contest, a dirty limerick contest. And what was the other thing she did? They danced, which actually happened in real and life. And they sang um, anything you can do, I can do better. Oh, <laughs> I love that version. I just want to live in that fantasy <laughs> for a week. If I could transport myself into any crown fantasy, it would be that one. Uh, but the real life, the real life dinner was not as colorful LBJ did give glowing, glowing remarks about Margaret. It was also interesting because the dinner coincided with LBJ's anniversary dinner. So at one point, he actually gave Tony marriage advice, Mm -hmm. which knowing in the the background that their marriage was crumbling was maybe a little bit off. Um, But they had... A lovely dinner, and then there were three three hours worth of dancing after. And the official White House report said that LBJ had an incredible time and danced with every woman there. I believe there were 140 guests. And in the crown, I love that Princess Margaret makes this offhand. What does she say about President Kennedy? That she found him in real life underwhelming. (laughs) Well, I think that that's such an interesting line. um, And we get little bits like that um, throughout this season and throughout the show where you realize that in some sense is just how apolitical the worldview of the royal family is because they're just like we don't we're just sort of above it. We don't know. Like it does nothing. Literally nothing affects us like. And so you can just like toss off a thing about like this, you know, American assassinated hero, whatever, um, or, you know, Elizabeth can make common cause with like bad, bad prime ministers, whatever. It's just like, you know, very, very telling of, of the kind of, uh, you know, isolated sort of lives that they, they lead. So he called her an angel and he told her, you have claimed our heart through this visit and we are very proud to give it to you. But you've done more. Lord Nelson once said... England expects every man to do his duty. And I say tonight, every woman too. And you have done your duty well in America. You've represented well the people that you serve with dignity and grace and spirit and joy. But the beauty of Prince Margaret, though, throughout all of these stops through this particular tour, she 
she would give official remarks, but they lasted no more. It was two sentences max, and she was out. Love so it. just picture I'm him. I'm so happy to be in Tucson. Thank you. Like, yeah. Right. And now that, that was just an excerpt of what LBJ said to Princess Margaret. And then she got up. And again, it's on. I think this was his first official appearance after his operation. This was his anniversary. And she gets up and she rattles off a quick two. <laughs> I love it. I love her so much. Um, the, we don't get much of Princess Margaret throughout the season. Uh, there are, there are many episodes without Helena Bonham Carter in them at all. Um, she shows up for the death of David, uh, for that great shot of like the family staring at Charles, like Helena Bonham Carter Mm. giving looks, looks, looks in that scene. Um, and then mostly shows up for this final installment, um, which focuses on, the definitive end of her marriage and this very scandalous affair that she had with a much younger man. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the height of hypocrisy because here is Tony having, um, a very open, uh, affair and Margaret gets lambasted. But of course this is like, we're still in the seventies. Double standards exist. Um, she is a Royal. He's not, et cetera. Um, I, I'm like, I, <laughs> this, episode omits a lot but still finds room for a lot richard what do you think of this of of margaret's torrid torrid affair and then her i i mean like and then a very sad reaction to the end of it yeah i mean it's sort of interesting seeing these scenes in in episode 10 uh and also in episode two where you know margaret is pretty you know she's pretty free with her like hedonistic impulses at least in certain rarefied social circles um, you know, to just sort of be openly talking about like finding a lover, you know, like kind of looking at all the men arrayed around a pool and be like that one, uh, and then taking him to a <laughs> store, just just marching on in there, being and like you know the, all these people, the, the store clerk is very like oh, your highness, and she's just like men swim swim trunks, you know, she doesn't, she's not saying hello, she's not um, you know, ascribing to any sort of like custom or anything like that. Um, that like it's funny to think of a British royal being sort of more like continental like main mainland europe like you know like western europe like you know like free love freer sort of about having you know extramarital affairs and all that it's not what you think of when you think of like queen elizabeth the second's like reign or whatever um so it's interesting but like just knowing that it's all leading to pretty much disaster gives the episode uh which i think is my favorite of the season uh a, a really um kind of tragic shape to it um and i think in the end says something interesting again about elizabeth's kind of gravitational pull where like at the end margaret just has to come back into the boring dull kind of passionless safety of 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 her sister basically yeah it's interesting i I do want to hear um from julie on on the, the like truth behind it all but i i want to check in with katie and see like i'm curious what you think of of Tony of this depiction of Tony throughout this season, Lord Snowden, about how much the family like loves him and takes his side against Margaret and all of that. Like, did you uh-huh. have any emotions around that? And that's a good point. I hadn't like, I felt like this version of Tony, I mean, Matthew Good is kind of a force unto himself and I missed him a lot. I, I think Ben Daniels does well. I think he maybe is the most convincing, um, uh, transition of the older actor. Like he feels a lot like, uh, how Matthew Good did. Um, but I, you know, I, it was very easy for me not to take his side. So it is kind of funny that the, uh, the whole family did, but he, you know, he's charming and Margaret's a pain in the ass. Like, 
she gathers them all together for her birthday dinner and then yells at all of them for like not being nice enough to her. Uh, so why wouldn't you kind of want to like, you know, have her stick it out with her husband? And at this point, I mean, I think they said theirs is the first divorce in the royal family since Henry VIII. Yeah. So it's like kind of unthinkable. You're like, oh, well, you have to work it out, obviously. Um, and then they didn't. And I've probably for the better. I mean, I think it like led to happier people in the end. But, um, yeah, I mean, they kind of felt like they were going to be stuck with him forever. So why not ask Margaret to buck up? I just felt like they were gaslighting her in a way. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just once again, the double standard. Like, yes, Margaret is a pain in the ass. She's a loose cannon. Like for, for Elizabeth to not necessarily stick up for her to Phil, for Philip to underestimate her for Anne to not even defend her aunt, like Anne with potentially more progressive politics or something like that. Um, for her husband to like continually embarrass her in this way. Um, you know, I, I, I felt for her, but at the same time, it's just like, it's funny because every time they see him, they're like, Oh, Tony, Tony's here. Oh, Tony, we love Tony. You're so great. <laughs> Isn't that what you would do if he showed up at your house? I mean, he's Ben Daniels or Matthew Good, probably. Uh, <laughs> okay. So Julie, what are we missing? What context are we missing from this depiction of, of, uh, Margaret's affair? Well, Christopher Warwick, who was her biographer, Margaret's biographer and friend, said that, I guess Margaret said to him, you know, Tony was very oily with my family, that he really kind of buttered them all up. And he said it was very true that they did kind of sympathize with Tony and take Tony's side and think that Margaret was to blame because she was a little bit difficult. Uh, what are we missing in this affair, though? It was fascinating to me digging back that Roddy wasn't Princess Margaret's first affair. Um, Lord Snowden, of course, had slept with serial women throughout the marriage. Um, it's so much so that when Margaret was pregnant with her daughter, Sarah, her gynecologist told Lord Snowden, like, you need to cool it with these affairs because they're really distressing the princess and it could cause her health issues. Um, and Christopher Warwick said that he actually did kind of calm down in that department, at least during her second pregnancy. Uh, but Margaret was so depressed. And again, her kids were off with a nanny and her husband was traveling so much for work that she did have two dalliances before Roddy. But Roddy was the first long-term one. Um, he lasted seven years. And yeah, that's what's so funny about this episode. I was talking to you about this before we started recording. Like the episode makes it seem like a weekend. She was with this guy for seven years, like seven years. Right. Yeah. And it's true that they met at this amazing kind of summer party at the Glen Connor Scottish estate. Um, Christopher Warwick said they didn't meet by the pool. They actually met at a restaurant beforehand. But it's true that Roddy hadn't brought his swimming suit and Margaret charmingly took him to get one. I thought that was very cute. Um, and by the end of this party, because it was this idyllic getaway, they had essentially fallen in love with each other because Margaret loved singing around a piano and Roddy did the same. They both had this, this shared interest in landscaping, gardening, um, and Roddy reminded her what love was and pulled her out of it. And Roddy was this kind of a drift guy through the years. He had a hard time figure out, figuring out what he wanted to do with his career, with his life, but Margaret loved him until the end. And there were these embarrassing chapters of their relationship for the family where Roddy at one point released a pop single. He was arrested for drunk driving. Didn't he release um, an album that's just called like Roddy or something like that? Like I'm pretty yes. sure that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did not, wow. it did not do well. No. 
And even though it was embarrassing for the queen, the queen didn't want to invite him to certain royal events. It was really touching to me at the end, after Margaret died. Christopher said there were times the queen wasn't happy with Margaret. She certainly wasn't happy with the Margaret affair. But after she died, after Margaret died, uh, Queen Elizabeth approached the friend that introduced Margaret to Roddy. And she said that she was actually grateful that Roddy was in her sister's life because he brought happiness and joy to her again. I thought Aww. that was very sweet, even though, even if the acknowledgement came later. But it's interesting, again, that they acknowledge it at all. I mean, I guess right. that it, it sort of complicates my understanding of the, you know, sexual politics, essentially, of these people. You know, I think we see in another episode this season uh, where Lord Mountbatten is talking about Charles and Camilla. And we'll, ta- you know, we'll talk about that next episode. But like, you know, he says something like, I just thought, you know, he'd so as well. Don't. It's like, so they, they, there was discussion of sex. Like sex was a sort of thing that people were not so rigid about. And I think, and I think that's, that's, the, that offers a sort of deeper portrait of these people than I think I had in my head. Right. Here, Anne Glenn Connor said, after Princess Margaret's funeral, the queen, she said, I'd just like to say, Anne, it was rather difficult at times. But I thank you so much for introducing Princess Margaret to ha- to Roddy because he made her really happy. Um, what another thing that I thought was really interesting that this episode touches on is that Princess Margaret had this like uh, this island property in Mystique, or maybe like kind of the whole island was hers. And uh, if you just Google like Princess Margaret Island, you will just see like she had this whole like life on this island um she got tanner than i've seen any human ever be like the the princess margaret tan is something to see with your own eyeballs but a lot of like beautiful (laughs) caftans a lot of like 70s people around her she had and like a lot of famous people would go out there to her island and like party with princess margaret on the island so this was like her thing that she did. It was very, there was a lot of security around the island. The person who ended up taking the photo of Margaret with Rowdy that was released in the newspapers, and that's kind of how a uh, word of this relationship broke, had to pose as a tourist. And he went with his wife and they ended up being at the same restaurant as Margaret and Rowdy. Like, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, security around this island. And I think that's why she enjoyed it so much. But I found I found the end of this episode really moving when we have um, her, I don't know, cry for attention is how her mother characterizes it or suicide attempt or whatever it is. We've got Helena Bonham Carter, of course, like doing all all the acting in the world uh, in this bedroom scene, but also Olivia Coleman bringing in and, and Elizabeth saying to Margaret, like, you're the person I love most in this world, which felt like a surprise to me when she says it, but she says it. And, um, and then Margaret has this thing that she says that Richard alluded to before, which is kind of the thesis of, of the show in this season, which is like, we all come and go, we break, we bend, we fall and you're steady and here at the center of it all. And I just thought that that was amazing that they gave that to Margaret, uh, to say and to do Katie, what did you think of this sister scene? I mean, I think you're right that it comes a little bit out of nowhere for where the season has been. And part of that is because Margaret is somewhat sidelined in the rest of the story. But I do believe that she means that much to Elizabeth. And I think they sell that scene um, 
between the two actresses like you feel that bond between them i mean it's the kind of scene that if it wasn't happening in the final moments of the season finale you'd be like what hang on this is like no one actually talks like this but it feels like it's giving the weight to the finale that it really deserves um and she's totally right like that's the kind of thesis of their entire relationship is that elizabeth is groomed to be the one who is the crown who is all of england and margaret is the one who's kind of like bopping around on her own and it feels really moving that she recognizes that and as far as i know like the queen and margaret remain really close for the rest of their lives so an understanding of that dynamic would be kind of essential for that and i I wish they would have gotten into it a little little bit more when i was speaking to christopher warwick he did share this one thing that almost caused me to tear up on the phone he was talking about how much the queen was her margaret's older sister and always very caring and knew so much that margaret could make mistakes say the wrong thing um, but was always very protective and solicitous they always spoke every day on the phone and then princess margaret died the same year as the queen mother so when it came time for the queen to give uh, the christmas address she said a few words about the queen mother but she notably didn't mention uh, princess margaret and afterwards she told her friends i just couldn't mention margaret i would have broken down Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, the show, the history does back the show having that moment. Yeah, I think that, you know, maybe the the one, the uh, another criticism of that moment as nice and well acted as it is, is like, it's once again, Peter Morgan being like, love the royals, see that they are important. <laughs> they are the only thing holding us together. Like the queen is the best, thing, you know. Why can't you be like the rest of us Americans and love the royals because no, no. our taxes don't pay for them and we can just watch them from afar and not get ourselves involved in British I politics? I do have British friends who are mad at me for watching The Crown, so I'm gonna have to. <laughs> myself here, but yeah, I think I would be more okay with it if British monarchy had ne- not kept me from pursuing my dream to become a ballet dancer. Sorry, a ballet. Oh, ballet. Yeah. Ballet. What's wrong with ballet? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um. All right. So is there anything else Margaret wise that we want to, we want to say before we go to our interview with, uh, Christopher Warwick? Um, I won't soon forget the sight of Helena Bonham Carter wearing a boa, a feather boa, a top hat <laughs> and glasses and playing a piano and singing. What was it like? It's something like, I forget what the song is, but you know, it's that, that's, that was quite a, a fun, uh, kind of cap to the, her singing in, in episode two. Should that be her Emmy? What nomination segment? What do you yeah. call that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I do love that, um, you know, Helena Bonham Carter is just like fine at singing and like went with that. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't just give you Sweeney Todd flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say all just fine singers should play Mrs. Lovett. And- <laughs> <laughs> but it did make like if I were Princess Margaret and I was able to just like have sing alongs all the time with my perfectly fine voice, I would absolutely do it. So it seemed right that she's like, yeah, she's she's royal. She doesn't have to be a good singer. <laughs> Um, all right. So let us go to Julie's conversation with uh, Margaret biographer Christopher Warwick. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue. 
where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's such a tragic story of this woman with these this amazing charisma and star power who was relegated to kind of play second fiddle. And the third season, which I imagine you haven't seen yet since it isn't released, uh, but kind of gets into that, into that sadness a little bit. Um, well, you see, I, I mean, I always, I always kind of uh, have disagreed with uh, the idea that she played second fiddle. Uh, I once said to her that it, it always struck me as odd that anybody should think she was playing second fiddle because she was very much a character in her own right. She was very much a personality in her own right. Um, and the idea that she had a sad life is, is not entirely true either. It's It's part of what I've tended to refer to as the Margaret legend. Uh-huh. Uh, we've got this picture of this uh, princess who um, was always in the shadow of her sister, um, wasn't able to marry the man that she loved and, uh, and led an unhappy life, none of which is actually true. So you think she, she lived a fulfilling life? What were the most fulfilling aspects of her life? I think that there were a, a lot of aspects of her life that she found fulfilling. You know, the, the, the only well-defined and certainly constitutionally defined role is that of the monarch. Right. Everybody else, regardless of whether they're siblings or cousins or whatever it might be, they have to find a role for themselves. And this traditionally, of course, has been in supporting and promoting charitable organizations. Before Diana came along, she was the first, albeit unpublicized, member of the royal family to focus attention on AIDS. You know, she was the patron of the London Lighthouse here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, she wasn't touchy-feely in the way that Diana was, and she didn't go out of the way, as Diana obviously did, to um, a- a- attract attention to it. But she was the first member of the royal family to have anything to do with AIDS and, and those suffering from it. With her family life, that was fulfilling. You know, and the man that she married, it was for a brief time, just a few years. But this worked for them for that very short period of time. I think there's the mistake. I mean, she was unlucky with the men in her life. You know, she didn't choose well. 
But then one has to say, how do you know who you fall in love with? Right. You know, it's the old, old story. And the 1965 uh, visit that Margaret and Tony made to America, that was not specifically to visit the Johnsons at the White House, although, of course, they did do that. They had dinner and there was a dance at the White House. They make it seem as though Elizabeth had been anxious to, to see and meet with Johnson, but Margaret got the invitation instead of her, and Elizabeth kind of assumed... Oh, that's absolute <laughs> tosh, absolute <laughs> rubbish. Oh, God, what rot. You know... Things are done. Things are done in a. There's such a thing as protocol. Did Margaret particularly like or admire Hollywood and performers? Yeah, I think I've heard that maybe if she had been born into a different family, she would have pursued theater herself or some sort of performance. But during one of her visits to America, she went down to the Grand Old Opry, and she told me with great excitement. She said, "I met Dolly Parton." And she was thrilled to bits to meet Dolly Parton. You know, this is, she had, this, and this was the, the cider that people very often didn't know existed, was that she was like everybody else. You know, thrilled to meet somebody she was a fan of. Um, and so this was, this was a, a part of her life. She entertained A-list celebrities at Kensington Palace. You know, she was friends with Frank Sinatra, with Taylor, with Burton, with Roddy McDowell. She was friends with Rudolf Nureyev and Margot Fontaine. She was friends with Judy Dench. Judy Dench told me on one occasion that uh, the princess had invited her back to dinner, uh, or, or at least to come to Kensington Palace after the show that she was in. And Judy Dench said to me when I arrived, Princess Margaret said, We've saved some dinner for you, and we'll just sit and watch you eat. Munch, munch, munch. There were big parties. There were seriously A-list guests guest that came to these. I mean, I once said to her about the parties. Oh, she said, we gave marvelous parties, and they did. Wow. And I don't know how much of it is, is legend or myth around Margaret, but you hear that she could be kind of rude to certain people um, and <laughs> dismissive and if, yeah. if, if they yeah. don't address her the correct way. Was that, is that truthful? Well, not, not so much if they didn't address her in, in the right way, but she could, you know, Oh, she's, it's perfectly true that part of this legend about how she could put people down um, it is absolutely true. And she, she had the most beautiful blue eyes. And if, if she felt that somebody had overstepped the mark or was becoming too familiar, her eyes would go from this lovely blue to ice grey and apparently I mean I, I, I haven't seen it but apparently the late Queen Mother could do it and so can the Queen but this is if you you know there's an, an historian that said that she could you know you could be getting on famously with her and then you might say something 
without realizing. And then she would jump back on her twig. She would draw herself up to her full height and remember, I am the queen's sister. Right. You know, so there was, there was, there was that side to her. She could be difficult. Um, she could put people down. She could be rude. But on the other hand, that was weighed against the fact that she was also a very generous, a very kind, and a very caring and amusing woman. So, you know, there were these two sides to her. But not all the stories, I have to say, in her defense, that not all the stories about bad behavior are true. By the early 70s, and this, I think, was the unhappiest part of her life, from around about... 72, maybe 71, 72, right the way through until they separated. I think that was, it was a bad time in her life. She was very unhappy. She was drinking too much. She was very lonely. Um, and then, of course, that's the time when she met Roddy Llewellyn. Right. And, and, he, and, and Roddy, this was in 19, September of 1973. And he, uh, such a charming, charming man. Um, he, of course, he was 17 years younger than her. Um, but they hit it off immediately. And what he did was to make her feel like a woman again. You know, he had a very good influence on her. And she felt that she was loved again. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what she needed in her life. She needed to be loved. She really fell in love with Roddy, and I think she loved him to the end of her life. The Crown also gets into a little bit when the news of the affair, those photographs were first published, and Margaret's just embarrassment over it, and uh, they say that Tony was also kind of angry, even though he had been having his own affairs. Do you recall anything... Um, from, from that period, and was Margaret that kind of embarrassed and humiliated? Well, I mean, Tony, of course, flew off to the Queen and said how humiliated he was, how humiliated he was, you know, this was not on. And of course, it was a case of, um, I mean, I've often said that if the boot had been on the other foot, if Margaret had been a man, and he was taken up with a, with a woman 17 years junior, what would people have said? They would have said, what a lucky dog, well, what a lucky <laughs> fellow. But, you know, because in this case the woman happened to be 17 years older, there was that old prejudice that I don't think has ever really gone away, that, you know, oh... It's this older woman with this younger man, this toy boy. Right. You know, so there was that kind of feeling there. And did you mention that at one point, maybe as her marriage to Tony was crumbling, she was drinking too much. Did anyone dare yeah. say anything to her about that? I don't know whether I don't know whether they did. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite possible, but you know. She was, I think everybody knew how unhappy she was. She was in, she was in a dark place. And I think that, you know, when people are in a dark place, they, she was, 
she was aware, she knew it, you know, and she knew that she was, she knew when she put on weight. Um, her relationship with Elizabeth, were they closest at one point? Were they ever close? Always close. Always close. I mean, there was this, there was this genuine bond of love between those two sisters that, that was never broken. You know, despite the fact that there were times that the Queen wasn't happy about Margaret, you know, she wasn't happy about the, the Roddy affair. She got fed up with the Peter Townsend business. When the Margaret Tony marriage was going wrong, they did tend to blame Margaret rather more than Tony. But throughout all of that, and throughout her, the ill health, the Queen was always very caring, very solicitous, and there was that bond of love always between the two of them. And they talk on the telephone every day, even if it was just to say hello. Oh, that's so sweet. This has been a delight, but thank you, and have a wonderful evening. Well, thank you, and you. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, that's it for episode two. We have done all the Margaret things, and now uh, you will see us back talking about Charles, Camilla, and Andrew. It's a love diamond. Um, until then, Katie Rich, where can people find you? Uh, editing things at vanityfair.com and on Twitter at Katie Rich. And Richard Lawson. Uh, my on, on my house and on Mustique. I'm just going <laughs> to take a little break. Work, working on your tan. I'll be tweeting uh, at Rylas from, from there. And Julie Miller. At Julie W. Miller and VanityFair.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at What's Wrong With Bali? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or on VanityFair.com. And we will see you for part three next time. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.